So like I said, it is great to be back here at Grace. I missed the last two Sundays worshiping with you. Uh, to uh, let you know what I was doing, I was gone uh, for a 10-day trip. Uh, seven of those days were spent whitewater rafting the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. And uh, it was a great trip. Uh, the main purpose of the trip really is we went with a group of Christians and we were studying the geology all around the Grand Canyon in order to see the evidence for the biblical flood, which I'll tell you all about that some other time. Uh, but I want to tell you right now just about the logistics of the trip. I mean, it was incredible. It was seven days of whitewater rapids. It was uh, sleeping on cots under the stars. On the last day for me, probably the highlight was riding a helicopter out of the Grand Canyon. Uh, it was spectacular. Uh, it was an amazing trip. But it was hot. Like, we've had a heat wave here, I know, in Dallas, and believe me, it was hot in the Grand Canyon. The air temperature was about 120 degrees. But on the other hand, the water temperature of the Colorado River was about 40 degrees. So it was two extremes. So we would spend all day just baking in the sun, and then in the evenings we would bathe in the freezing temperature of the Colorado River. It was really two extremes. And so, needless to say, I was super excited to get back home where I got to thrive in air conditioning and a hot shower. It was like a glorious, a glorious time back home. Um, but I'll be honest, you know, bathing in the Colorado River, I did it even though the water was freezing because I'm a bit of a germaphobe. Um, I don't know about you, but personal hygiene is really high on my list of priorities. How many hygiene people do we have here? This is not nearly enough hands up in the air. Um, and if you didn't raise your hand, I am judging you. you you're the dirty people. Um, so during the meet and greet time, I'm not going to shake your hand anymore. But let me ask you a question. In that little demonstration, who's really the dirty person? Who's really the unclean? It's me. Because when I asked that question and, and had you raise your hand, if you didn't raise your hand, I immediately judged you. I expect you to conform to my standards of clean and unclean. And if you don't, I judge you. And that is exactly the issue we're going to see here in Mark chapter 7. And so if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please open up to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7 as we take a look at this really complex issue of clean versus unclean. Now, as you're turning to Mark chapter 7, here's something very important that I want you to understand. Jesus is going to call out the Pharisees for expecting people to conform to their standards of clean and unclean. But what's vitally important for you to understand is Jesus is not anti-obedience. Jesus is not anti-obedience to the word of God. What Jesus is calling out here is obedience to these man-made rules in addition to the word of God. And that's the issue 
that we're gonna see emerge from the text this morning. The reason I'm highlighting this is because in our culture today, it's very common when people are confronted with the truth of scripture, it's common for people to say, hey, don't judge me, right? But licentiousness is, is not acceptable. We should expect ourselves and we should expect other believers to live in obedience to the word of God. What Jesus is condemning here is when we elevate our man-made rules and religion to the same status as the word of God and expect people to comply and meet my religious standards. That's the issue here in the text. There on your outline, you can see the two main stories we're going to take a look at this morning in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 30. First, we're going to see Jesus' interaction with the pretenders. The pretenders, the Pharisees, the hypocrites that Jesus engages with here. He calls them out for their hypocrisy and for their judgmentalism on other people. But then, in beautiful contrast to the pretenders and to the Pharisees, Jesus has this exchange with one who is truly pure of heart. This Gentile woman who comes to Jesus begging for grace and for mercy on behalf of her daughter. We're going to see this contrast here in Mark chapter 7 this morning. But first, let's take a look at number one on your outline. Jesus engaging with the pretenders, with the Pharisees, with the judgmental ones here in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Grab your Bibles and let me read for you first. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Mark chapter 7, verse 1 says, The Pharisees... And some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So here, verses 1 through 4 kind of give the setting, the context, the situation that's going to lead to this controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees. Notice that first, verses 1 through 2 tell us that the Pharisees and subscribes gather around Jesus. They surround Jesus. They're surrounding Jesus, by the way, not really to ask him a question, but really to make an accusation. See, Mark tells us they come and they want to know why Jesus' disciples, verse 2, eat their bread with impure hands that is unwashed. So the religious leaders come, they surround Jesus, and really you could say, they could, you could paraphrase, they demand to know from Jesus why his disciples eat with impure hands. And then verses 3 and 4 gives us the background information. It's probably set in parentheses in your English Bible. Mark is adding this for the benefit of his Roman audience who doesn't understand the Jewish customs. And Mark explains, he says, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not, do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. 
And when they come from the marketplace, where, by the way, they may have rubbed shoulders with a Gentile, they not only wash their hands, but they cleanse themselves. And then he adds, there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So again, this is the scene in your mind that I want you to picture. Jesus is now surrounded by the religious leaders and they demand to know why Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands according to their traditions, according to their customs. And by the way, it's fascinating. There's a document called the Mishnah which outlines all of the rules that the Jews had attached to this idea of washing with pure hands. Over 30 major sections outlining exactly how they were supposed to wash their hands and wash their cups and copper pots and vessels. Very detailed and intricate additions to the word of God. And for a loyal Jew who sat under the teaching of the Pharisees to disregard all of these man-made rules and religion was to them considered a sin. See, they had elevated their traditions, their rituals, their religion to the same status, to the same level as the very authoritative word of God. So the religious leaders come and they surround Jesus and they want to know why his disciples aren't eating according to their rules. And notice verse 5 continues. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according, notice, to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? This is the question they want to know. So notice Jesus' reply, verse 6. He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. Jesus is holding nothing back here. There are several things I want you to notice in his reply to the Pharisees' question. First of all, notice he calls them outright hypocrites, two-faced, saying one thing but doing another. And in doing so, he quotes here Isaiah 29. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. Notice as well, Jesus highlights the fact that the religious leaders honor God with their lips outwardly, but inwardly their heart is far from God. And so as a result, their worship, Jesus says, is in vain. It's in vain, it's worthless, it's futile, it means nothing. Because they teach as doctrines the precepts of men. Again, they've elevated 
man-made rules and religion to the same level as the very word of God. And then notice verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, setting it aside, you hold to the tradition of men. Jesus just calls them out. He says, by elevating your traditions, your man-made rules, you've actually neglected and set aside the very word of God. He raises the question, in other words, what's your priority? What's your authority? The word of God or religious man-made ritual? And then notice he goes on to explain what he means in verses 9 through 13. He was also saying to them, notice this, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. You're experts at setting aside the Bible in order to live out your tradition. And then he gives an example, verse 10, for Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. That's what the word of God says. And in this culture, it was expected for children to honor their father and mother all the way through life. But then notice how they got out of it. But you say, verse 11, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And then notice this, this is just one example. You do many things such as that. So Jesus calls out the religious leaders for neglecting the word of God so they obey their tradition, their religion. And he gives just one example of many he could have given. This example of honoring your father and mother. Again, it would have been expected in this day that as your parents age, you honor your father and mother by providing for them materially and financially in their old age. That was expected. That was a way of living out that commandment. But notice the gymnastics they do in order to get out of obeying the word of God. They say, well, if we declare that this money is Corbin or set aside for God, then we're not going to take what was given for God and give it to our parents instead, right? And so they find these ways of getting out of obedience to the word of God in order to really do what they want to do. And Jesus shows how they cleverly sidestep God's law in order to observe their own traditions. It's clever. And I would submit to you that we're clever in that as well. Or I'll say I'm clever in that as well. We often, I often read the Bible and I immediately think, well, there's no way I can do that. Jesus surely didn't mean that. And we creatively find ways to make the word of God say something less than what it really says and thus invalidating the word of God, the very same thing that the Pharisees do here. 
For that reason, one of my favorite quotes really of all time is from Soren Kierkegaard. First of all, when you quote Soren Kierkegaard, you sound really smart, but uh, listen to what he says here. He says, our Bible learning has become nothing but a fortress of excuses and escapes. The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be able, unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. He says, take any words in the New Testament and forget anything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. Have you ever felt that tension? You read the Bible and you creatively find ways to get out of it and back out of it, out of obeying it. One thing I want you to do this week, and this is between you and the Lord, is to set aside some time and just think through that. What are some of the ways that you creatively back out of obedience to God and to his word? And we all do it, let's be honest. All right, that's enough conviction. Let's get back into the text. Verse 14. After here confronting the Pharisees, verse 14 tells us, after he called the crowd to him again and began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus now shifts to the nature of true defilement. True defilement, Jesus says, are not the things that you put in your body. The Pharisees, again, wrongly believed that they wouldn't get defiled as long as they washed their hands in the right way and avoided the right kind of people, the wrong kind of people. But Jesus says, listen, it's not what's outside of you that defiles you. It's the things that come from you, from inside of you, that defile you. And then he goes on to explain, verse 17, when the crowd, when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable and he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, there we see that word again, it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated and then we're given again this parenthetical statement, thus he declared all foods clean. And we get to praise the Lord that we get to eat bacon now, right? But Jesus says, listen, it's not what you eat that defiles you. It goes into the stomach and is eliminated. It, what's, it's what that comes out of you that defiles you. In other words, it's not about food. It's about your heart. And then Jesus specifically tells us what are those things that when they come out of us, it's evidence of our defilement, our true heart defilement. Notice verse 20, he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, notice this, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, 
adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. By the way, notice, like I mentioned earlier, that Jesus does expect obedience to the word of God and to the character of God, right? Jesus lists these things here and he says, these are the things that defile you. So it's wrong for people to say, listen, who are you to judge me? I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. No, I can't. There's clearly a standard, moral standard of what is right and what is wrong. And Jesus identifies some of those things that defile us here. Again, look at the list. Evil thoughts. The things that that begin in our mind. the, The judgmentalism that we often have. And fornications or illicit sexual activities of various kinds. Thefts. Stealing what isn't ours because we feel entitled to it. Like it, we somehow deserve it. Murders, which is self-explanatory, but elsewhere Jesus connects it with anger. Again, he connects it to the heart. Adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus says all of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. In other words, what Jesus is correcting here, he's saying, listen, don't worry about exactly how you're supposed to wash your hands or the copper pots and vessels. Forget about it. Consider instead the true nature of your heart. Look at the things that proceed from you that are evidence of the sin within. Jesus took the focus of attention away from the external rituals and religion and placed it instead on the internal moral condition of the heart. Okay, so let me go back to my Colorado trip for just a minute. So it was seven days on the river, and it was all guys, and so you can imagine that after seven days on the river, 120 degrees in in air temperature, we were pretty funky by the end of the trip, right? We were kind of a gross group of guys, needless to say. Uh, But one of the things that the rafting uh, guides did is they did take at least mealtime, the cleanliness of mealtime pretty seriously, and I appreciated it. And so they had a little uh, routine that we had to go through for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You would go over, and first of all, they had these, these buckets uh, with a foot pump. You had soap, and you'd wash your hands. You'd lather up real good and wash your hands. And then you would go to this other line where you would grab a plate, you'd grab a fork and a spoon and a knife, and there were four water buckets. And you were to go from bucket to bucket to bucket to bucket. The first bucket was simply rinse water. So you rinsed off the plate, your fork, your knife, your spoon. Then you went to the second bucket, which was warm soapy water. And there were scrub brushes, and you were supposed to uh, wash your, your plate, your fork, your knife, your spoon. Then you went to a second warm water rinse bucket. And then the fourth bucket was water with a little Clorox in it. Because we were using, you know, common dishes, right? You weren't assigned a dish. And so every meal, um, you were to wash your hands and wash your dishes, and then after you ate, you went back through the bucket line and washed your stuff before you put it away because you didn't know who was going to get that plate 
fork, spoon, or knife the next time. And again, as the gerbophobe that I am, I loved that process. Um, I loved it. Until I began to notice that some of the other guys on the trip, they didn't wash their hands quite to my standards. Like they went through the line way too fast. And then I didn't really care if they ate on a dirty plate, but when they went to go put the plate back in the bucket, if they didn't clean it according to my standards, I was getting pretty upset because again, that might be my plate next time. And so immediately, as I observed all of this, that judgmental spirit in me came out, right? Because that's exactly what we do. When we see people who don't conform to my expectations, then I began to judge them. The truth is we weren't told exactly how long we were supposed to wash our hands. We weren't told exactly how long we were supposed to dunk our plates into each bucket. And I began to judge every other guy if they didn't do the washing as I wanted it done. And we do that throughout our life. Not just with washing dishes, but with everyday issues of life. We take the rules, the word of God, but then we add to it our own man-made expectations and standards. And then we judge people who don't live up to my man-made expectations and standards. See, there's a Pharisee in all of us. There's a pretender, a hypocrite in all of us. But just because we all have a Pharisee inside of us, that doesn't make it okay. Because what Jesus is really looking for is the pure in heart. And we see a great example of one who is truly pure as we look at number two on your outline. Now, at first glance, this second story of the Syrophoenician woman might seem completely unconnected to what we just looked at. But this Syrophoenician woman really serves as a hinge to what's going to happen throughout the rest of chapters 7 and 8. Jesus is about to really begin focusing on his ministry to Gentiles. And we see this Syrophoenician woman as the hinge point in this. But this woman also serves as a foil to the Pharisees. This woman serves in a literary sense as a foil to the pride of the Pharisees. We see here instead in beautiful display this woman who comes to Jesus with true purity of heart. Notice verse 24. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. A couple things that I want you to see here. First of all, notice once again that Jesus is retreating to a secluded place. And from time to time in Jesus' ministry, he would escape public eye in order to go to a private place. But as we're seeing here, so we've seen in previous chapters and Mark, 
Jesus is finding it hard to escape and people uh, hear about him. His reputation precedes him. And such is the case here. He goes into Gentile region, into the area of Tyre and Sidon, Gentile territory. And there in Gentile territory, this woman has heard of Jesus. And so notice verse 25 says, she came and fell at his feet. And verse 26 says, she kept asking, not just once, but repetitively was asking Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. The third thing I want you to notice here is Mark emphasizes the fact that she's a Gentile, a woman, unclean by the standards of the Pharisees of this day. Untouchable, unapproachable, Gentile, Syrophoenician woman. But she kept asking. She kept asking for Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And notice Jesus' reply at first. He was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, at first glance, Jesus' words here seem harsh, don't they? Because we know that Jews often called Gentiles Gentile dogs. This was a derogatory term. Interestingly, Jesus uses a a slightly different word here for dog. But nevertheless, Jesus is at first refusing her request, right? What I want you to notice, Jesus says, though, he says, let the children, that is the children of Israel, be satisfied first. And we see throughout Jesus' ministry, he prioritized, first and foremost, his ministry to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. And then Jesus uses this illustration, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But notice this woman's persistence. She doesn't take no for an answer. Verse 28, notice her humble reply. She answered him and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. There's a couple things I want you to notice here in the words of this Syrophoenician Gentile woman. First of all, she acknowledges Jesus' authority. She calls him Lord. Yes, Lord. Second thing I want you to notice is she recognizes her own humble position. She recognizes that she is a dog simply under the table, undeserving, unworthy. But the third thing she says is even the dogs feed on the children's crumbs. She knows that even just a little bit of grace and mercy from Jesus will give her what she needs. She won't exhaust his supply of grace and mercy. She needs just a crumb. As I was studying these verses this week, it reminded me of the scene from Oliver Twist. Please, sir, I want some more. (laughs) Right? That's her humble posture. 
Jesus, just, just give me the crumb that falls from the master's table. In verse 29, we see Jesus say to her, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. Notice, has gone out already. He right then cast the demon out of his daughter, or her daughter. And going back to her home, verse 30, she, the woman, found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Again, it's a beautiful story. Set in contrast to the pride of the Pharisees is this humble posture of the woman falling at the feet of Jesus, just begging for a crumb of his grace and mercy. And this, by the way, should be our posture towards Jesus as well. Like the woman, we all are undeserving and unworthy of his grace and mercy in our life. But like the woman, all we need is but a crumb of his grace and mercy to fully supply us with what we need. And listen, I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation this morning here in this room or watching online, if you've not put yourself at the feet of Jesus, trusting in him and in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, for his grace and his mercy in your life, forgiving you, redeeming you, making you a child of God then I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation right here, right now, to simply put your faith in him. And he will give you all the forgiveness you need. But once again, notice the beautiful contrast here. Notice the difference in the posture of the heart between the Pharisees and this Syrophoenician woman. The Pharisees were all caught up and bound up in their pretend moralistic purity where the Syrophoenician woman has the true purity of the heart that Jesus is looking for. Listen, for you and I, if, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been around the church for a while, the main danger here in this passage that we need to wrestle with is this danger of hypocrisy and legalism. We need to be mindful of the danger we often enter into where our faith becomes this set of do's and don'ts, this religious ritual that we go through, and in doing so, we miss the very heart of God. Again, there is a standard. Don't misunderstand me here. There is a standard of the righteousness of God revealed in the Scripture, and we are, as followers of Jesus, supposed to be transformed into that standard. But what we often do is we add to the word of God our own man-made rules. And like the Pharisees, we expect others to fall in line. It's easy for us to relate to the Pharisees, maybe not on issues of how to wash your hands or how to wash your dishes. But for us in this Christian subculture, it's other things. Let me give you just a few examples of things that we might add to the Word of God and expect other people to conform. In our culture, it may be, you know, what, a, what schooling option did you choose for your kids or grandkids? And we judge people who chose a different course of action, right? Or maybe it's particular types of clothing that people wear. Again, there's a standard of modesty, but we're all going to define it in slightly different ways. 
Maybe it's the books you read or the movies you watch or the books you allow your kids to watch or movies you allow them to, uh, books you allow them to read or movies you allow them to watch. In many generations, it was the consumption of alcohol. We judge other people who make different choices than we do. Again, drunkenness is a sin, sure. But we judge other people who maybe drink with moderation. Currently, a big one is politics, right? And not just Republican versus Democrat, but if you don't vote exactly like I vote, if you don't hold to all the political opinions that I hold to, then I began to judge your spirituality, right? All right? Even call into question your own salvation, right? Um, but whatever your legalism du jour is, we all have them. And the dangerous trap we see here in this passage is that these man-made things can become a more important criteria than the very Word of God. But it's only when we come to terms with and confront that pretender, that Pharisee, that legalist inside of us, that we can then turn to God with a pure heart. And so that's what I want you to do this week. I know this is convicting. It's convicting for me. We all do this. But your one thing for this week is this, on the back side of your outline, I would ask you, based on this passage, to see that Jesus focuses on inner purity rather than external ritual. And I'd invite you to perform a heart check and ask God to identify the areas in your life that are defiled and need purification through the gospel. And I think those are easily identified in those areas where we tend to judge other people. So I confess to you, I am a germaphobe. I'm a legalist, I'm a Pharisee in that way. And in some way, we all are. We judge people based on their ability to conform to our rules. But here in Mark chapter 7, God invites us to stop being the pretenders and to instead examine our heart and to humbly receive and extend to others the same grace that Jesus has given to us. Please, sir, I want some more. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we do confess that legalistic tendency, that pharisaical tendency inside all of us. Father, we confess that sometimes we read your word and we find ways of backing out of obedience to it. Other times we attach rules and man-made religion to your word and force that upon other people and judge them when they don't do what we want. And so forgive us, Father. Forgive us when we don't extend to others the grace that you have given to us. But Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for redeeming us. And we humbly ask this morning, Father, that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to live for you as we do follow Jesus in this fallen world. Help us by our lifestyle not to turn people away from the very gospel that saves us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.